Hello, my name is Kojabwa, host of the Change Africa podcast. On our premiering episode, I speak with Carl Malan, COO of the Ecobank Foundation. We explore diverse topics from his views on the African informal economy, education, fatherhood, healthcare, and Afro-optimism. If you're new here, don't forget to subscribe and review our show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by being one of our amazing patrons for exclusive content and perks in the link in the description. Here's my conversation with Kyle. I don't know. I don't know if you have to start this. Anyway, how are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, I am doing fine. Uh, I had a former boss who actually told me that I must always answer, I am well. Uh, that being, <laughs> fine, being fine is not good enough. So Why? What's the difference between well and fine? Well, I guess uh, being well uh, in her mind is higher than being fine. You know, I guess being fine is the average. I just uh, accepted that she was right. So <laughs> nobody ever asked me that question before. So <laughs> I'll probably try <laughs> and reach out to her. Yeah. And ask let's her, let's okay, try and reach out to her. <laughs> what exactly did you mean then? Because Isaac wants to know. Um, I want to start the podcast off like the various things that you have done so it doesn't seem like your career has gone through one trajectory you've worked in health you've worked in education you've worked in poverty reduction now you are at Ecobank where basically a lot of things are happening Um, one of the very first things that I think that you did impressively amongst all the impressive things that you've done is Serving as the executive secretary about for the Africa Ebola Solidarity Trust, can you tell me about that moment? You know, Ebola is one of the, I guess, greatest pandemics to have ever hit the African um, continent in contemporary times. How were you able to help in solving that very huge issue? And what are some of the skills that, or some of the knowledge that you learned from that wisdom? I guess. So, I didn't help to solve. I was able to help the African Union send health workers from the African continent, from 20 African countries, to Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. So about my career, it has been one of observing and absorbing, which I think are two important elements in a learning journey. The ability to observe and the ability to absorb. The role that I took was in a way uh, linked to the fact that I was in the right place at the right time. When Ebola hit, I was a Mo Ibrahim fellow in the office of the Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Africa. And in this role, I was acting as sort of a liaison with the African Union. So I work on a lot of uh, files and issues that he was dealing at the time. And one of his issues was Ebola. And something unusual happened where three Pan-African institutions, the African Development Bank, the Economic Commission for Africa, and the African Union, the leadership of this institution came together and decided that it was time to act decisively on what was 0.68% of Africa's GDP and how it was drowning the rest of the 90% narrative around Africa. So they all use the networks. 
to make sure that business people, civil society organizations, individuals contribute to the African Union response to Ebola. And when I finished my internship, my fellowship at the Economic Commission for Africa, I applied for the position, but I was able to apply for this position because of some of the work that I was doing and the fact that there are people who believe that I was the right person to assist in this initiative. So I didn't have to solve, but I was part of a larger group of people and I was one of the soldiers that did their part, not from an army perspective, but by contributing to make sure that there is a document to be signed to allow the health workers to go to Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. There are maybe three things that... Go ahead. Ah, continue. There are maybe there are maybe three things that I can take away from this experience. Number one, when Africans come together, they can actually make things work. And I hope that we do so, we do so more often. The second thing is the trust that was given to me um, on the basis of things that people saw. And we are not always good at assessing ourselves the things that we do. So it's always comforting when individuals, a group of individuals believe that you can help achieve the mission that they have set for the organization. The third thing for me was that African health workers are not celebrated enough because it was a group of close to 9,000 African health workers from 20 African countries that went to Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And that was important. And if you think about today, the COVID-19, it is again a lot of African health workers that are helping to make sure that the, the curve that we expected to go up did not really go up. So it is, it is never a straight line. Uh, and it should not be a straight line. It should be a line of opportunities and risk that one is willing and able to take. Yeah, that, that's very modest on your part by saying that you didn't help to solve it. But yeah, I get that. Um, I'd like to go back on your first point that Africans can solve African problems. You know, I listened to this podcast of yours where you were taking a retrospective look at your past um, growing up in uh, I don't know whether it was Abidjan or Togo, but you talk about your education where you're having all these problems in the university in Abidjan, I think. And you always thought that perhaps what was good education would come from the West. And then you then recognizing that one of the things that your father did to you that was the best thing that he probably gave, gave to you as a gift is allowing you to go through the African educational system because that's how you're able to garner all these skills to solve African problems. I would like to ask you that what, where does that thinking come from that we Africans are just not good enough and how do we solve it? I think we, we, are, we are losing probably um, the ability to see what Africans have done. If you think about the liberation movement in most African countries, actually across the continent, the people who led this were actually very young people. You can think about Nasser in, um, in Egypt. You can think about Cabral in Guinea-Bissau. You can think about your own Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. 
uh, even Felix Fuebuani in Cote d'Ivoire, where I'm from. All these were very young people, even Nelson Mandela and uh, some uh, some Joma in uh, in uh, in Namibia. They were young people that decided that they needed to be something different for what they believe Africa could do. And they helped each other as much as they could. So I think when one starts to look at itself or himself or herself through the lens of those that have done it before and in maybe difficult circumstances, and one accepts that if you were born after the independence of your country, and in my case, um, 18 years after the independence of Côte d'Ivoire, there are some issues that are not necessarily yours to fight, but there are issues for you to acknowledge and understand how they play in, in the world. In 1996, when I finished um, high school, I had assumed that I would go and study in Europe because that's what most people whose parents could afford would do. In my case, my father made a different decision. And the fact that I spent one year at the University of Abidjan, then subsequently in Zimbabwe, then in, in Cape Town, allowed me to understand that we are part of the solution. And that the solution is not necessarily bad when it comes from the outside it can be improved from whatever it comes from, as long as we understand that we are in this together and we're trying to do this for uh, the next generation. And that is an important element. We never do it for ourselves. We do it for the next generation. When I think about uh, the Africans that lost their lives for what they believed in, this is what one of the definitions of leadership that I like, which is to go forth and die. And dying is not always physical. It can also be spiritual or in different ways. But as long as one understands that I am doing it for the next generation, there is an element of ourselves that we always try to look around, not up, always for directions. And this is probably why I think I have this, in the sense that I try as best as possible to look around from a horizontal perspective where do I find the leaders that can help move the needle? It's important to look up sometimes for directions, but that's just for directions. The act of doing, the act of giving is a personal choice. You invited me to share some of my experience in your podcast. And that act of giving that you first initiated is a reciprocity that actually adds value to our lives. And... For me, being an African means that I have to do everything that I can so that when my children are older, they believe that I've tried my best to help them live in a better continent. Of course, it will be their decision if they choose to live here or somewhere else. But ultimately, I am doing what my father did for me which was to give me something to believe in, which is Africa, to give me something to aspire to, which is the next generation. And he gave me something which is even more important, life. You know, the life that my parents gave me and that they were able to preserve and help me understand how to preserve my life. 
is invaluable because if I was not able to preserve that life, I don't think you and I would be speaking today. I don't think I was, I was going to be in a position to think about all these different elements because life is precious. And if many of us on the continent don't have access to the basics, which is nutrition, for example, uh, education, hopefully quality education, um, and the ability to project yourself, if we are missing these elements, it becomes very difficult to think that we can solve our own problems as Africans. My last point on this is that it's easier to find a culprit and to point the finger. It is more difficult to understand the circumstances that pushed an individual, a group of individuals, to make a certain decision. And that's where I try to find to, to position myself, to try to understand the reasons why they made that decision. And once we spend a little bit more time to understand why people make certain decisions, we are slower to judge. And we can start to think about providing an alternative if we choose to criticize. But if we don't have an alternative, criticizing is an easy uh, way out. So, um, researching for this podcast, I've seen that we really share a lot of very fundamental um, ideologies about Africa. And one of the things that's very intriguing for me is the thing about the informal sector and the shared economy, what we also call the gig economy. And then I found out that your thoughts around the gig economy is that it has the potential to become one of the biggest driving forces of the, um, the African future. And what we have to do is to give young people the education to validate that kind of informal education to graduate into the formality that it is. And I think that we have seen that in the past decade or two, companies like Uber, companies like Airbnb already trying to digitize shared models that we have seen centuries, for example. It was always a normal thing for people to share rooms in houses. It was a normal thing for people to share trotro seeds or I think what um, in Abidjan, it's forgotten the, the, the shared commute, but Baka. it's just normal. Yeah, bakas, bakas. And I think it's the same thing at... Um, um, in Kenya, it's called matutas, something like that. Matatus, so, yeah. matatus, matatus, yeah. So, and I'm trying to work actually. So, my startup I'm working on is called VLU. You are trying to um, find a way to make these things even more formalized. What is the African? What's like the future of the African informal economy? Well, it's not even to talk about the future. It is a present. Uh, uh-huh. The what we call the informal economy is a majority driver of our economies. Um, we, we have seen when you are in any city in, in Africa, you have the ability to see individuals that are selling different type of ways at the traffic lights. Um, and they do this with a number of skills. That, you know, they can count the money as fast. They can process the information. They can negotiate with you. All these are skills that they have. Now, we, we like to resemble things that we don't have. And that's the way, basically, the model has been built. But we can count, we all know somebody whose mother or father was or is still in the informal economy and has helped them and their cousin to go to school and graduate from university. We don't often celebrate that. But what we see is that if, when someone graduates from an 
Ivy League school or from uh, other schools who celebrate it. Uh, when someone becomes a citizen of another country that a lot of people aspire to go celebrate it. Through my reading, I discovered that there are 1.3 billion people, according to the ILO, that are in the informal sector. These 1.3 billion people are not Africans. They are in majority from Asia. So you start to ask yourself a question. If informal economy is helping to drive Asian economies, why is it not the case on the continent? Because clearly they've done something right. And it's difficult to use what you don't count. So the statistics, often when you speak about the informal economy, they're always estimated. So if you have to always estimate something, it means that you don't have a sense of what it is. And I think it's important to know what the majority looks like. Because that will help us shape better policies. And I don't necessarily think that the solution is to formalize them. The solution is to always listen to what their needs are and how do we improve from where they are. And this is why I like the idea of the Africa we have and not so much the Africa we want. Because it is by reinforcing the Africa we have that some of us will see the Africa we want and whatever that Africa we want may look like. And it's been discussed, it's been debated, there are documents, Agenda 2063 is one of those uh, that defines it. But for me, the informal economy is what I see every day when I, uh, when I leave Lome, uh, when I leave home to go to the office. It's uh, the, the, the lady that is selling porridge by the street corner where individuals that are both in the formal sector and the informal sector will go and buy from her. But she's there every day at the same time, often for four, uh, half past four, five in the morning to make sure that she serves the clients. So the intersection between the informal and the economy and the formal economy is there. We see it every day. In the streets of Accra, where you live and where I lived for two years, you have individuals that are selling scratch cards to put uh, airtime in your phone. But they are sourcing the material from a formal uh, uh, company. Some of these companies are listed in some of the biggest stock exchanges in the world. So the assumption that these two worlds are different is not correct. And I think for us uh, as Africans, we have a responsibility to ensure that we start to account what the majority looks like. And how do we make sure that for some of us that have gone to, to school and are working in a formal environment, we try to make sure that the work that we do helps to bring what is required for women, young people, in the informal economy and men, of course, to improve their lives. Not everybody, not everybody wants to be in the formal sector. And we cannot simplify this equation by saying they don't pay taxes. Because a trotro driver in Accra will buy fuel. There's tax on fuel. The question about the income, 
you can find today very creative solutions with, uh, because everybody has a cell phone or everybody has a cell number. And that cell number is linked to an individual because it's required for the KYC, know your client. So it is possible um, to adapt and to help based on what they need and not what we think they need. Let's talk about education and the youth. Two things that I think you are very big on, um, having worked, still working with um, the Leo Africa um, organization, which is a leadership organization for our listeners, also with junior achievements and all these things that you do. The African youth is going to, in the next um, 20, 25 years, going to be almost half the population of the world. Are we training them enough for the challenge that obviously would be bestowed on them to lead the continent into the next level of progress? So the youth that you are speaking about, yes, will be the, the youth of the world. I tend to make a distinction between urban youth and rural youth because the aspiration of these two groups are not necessarily the same. Interesting, yeah. Uh, they, in terms of internet penetration on the continent, we are just below 40%. So it means that 60% of the 1.3 billion Africans don't have access to internet. And if that is the case, then uh, could a majority of young people on the continent do not have the same experience that you and I have, and I'm not assuming that I'm a young person, in terms of access to information <laughs> or exactly. access to um, uh, data. So the young people that are in urban areas are very much connected with the rest of the world, very much connected with other Africans on the continent. And there is this big aspiration for change. There's this big aspiration for things that are better, which is important. The question for me is, how many of these young people look inwards, inland, and ask themselves the question, how does our activism in the capital city is helping the majority of young people that are in, urban, that are in rural areas? And that's, I think, an important point, which is similar in a way to the conversation about the informal and the formal economy. Because we tend to focus our attention on the minority. And that is an issue. At the moment, the majority of Africans live in rural area. So young people in urban areas have to ask themselves a question. How do we use the platforms that we have to ensure that young Africans that might be in rural areas working in, in farms and agriculture, and if we take one of the main exports in our respective countries, which is cocoa, how many young people are working in the cocoa industry? And I'm, as a young person in an urban area, what do I do so that my activism improves the living condition and the working condition in areas. To your point around education, it's education needs to serve a purpose. Of course, you need to have the basics. 
But the education needs to have a purpose. And what should that purpose be? Is for the community to define it and make the necessary adjustments in how we value education. When we spoke earlier about the, the informal sector, do we value the skills in the informal sector? Do we, have, not. do we have, for example, the young traders in the streets of Accra or Nairobi or Cairo going to classroom to speak about the experiences to students that are in those classrooms? And I think part of, a, of what I, I, I try to do in, in, in designing with these programs of junior achievement or the Leo Institute um, Africa is to ensure that they are co-designed with in mind the people that will receive the, the opportunity. At the moment, these two initiatives are focused on young people in that have access to internet. So some of them might be rural areas. We will have to wait and see the statistics on, on that. But most importantly, educating for the sake of educating, that's not the objective. Where is a nation going or where is a continent going? If we take today the African continental treated area, we want to be one market of 1.3 billion. What are the skills that are required to make this happen? You can think about you can think about logistics. You can think about um, uh, cross-border trading. You can think about marketing. You can think about improve uh, farming conditions. Those are a number of skills that will have to be available for this to become a reality. Therefore, when you think about the education that needs that young people need to receive this will have to be factored into. And it's not an easy process. I'm not assuming that, you know, improving education is an easy process. Very few countries have, have tried and succeeded. And again, on this one, because we're not too sure of the data, we assume that it is not necessarily good. Lots more progress needs to be made, but it needs to be made with a clear purpose. And that, I think, for me, is a key part. What is the purpose of the education that we're giving? So I think we keep coming back to the subject of data and it's, um, I guess, inadequacy in the African continent. You are an economist, so in most of your thinking and your work, you have to deal with data. The problem is that, I guess, there is a huge gap in the personnel who are supposed to um, do the research and the output of research, actually. I think the last time I checked, out of all research that is done in the world, only about 2% is coming from Africa and is focused on Africa. How do we try and break this gap considering that a lot more people are not necessarily going into academia because, you know, there's a diversification in the kind of job forms that exist now in the 21st century. How do we encourage more people to go into research and especially specifically do research that is about Africa? I think there is um, a lot, probably a lot more data available than we, we tend to accept. If you think about the number of Africans, for example, that are on all these social media platforms, there is data that is being collected. 
The question is today who owns the data? And uh, how do we use the available data to help us navigate for what we need? On the question about the lack of uh, uh, African or the lack of African voices with data and narrative, I think it is changing. I think it is improving. Um, the fact that you have 55 member states of the African unions that have sort of their own independent uh, tools does not necessarily help, but there's a lot of work that is being done to harmonize and to provide um, better data. I do think that the most important data is actually uh, civil registration and vital statistics, which means that when someone is born to be on the continent, that person must be able to be uh, registered. The parents must be able to get a birth certificate for the individual. That's where it starts. In the absence of a birth certificate, it is impossible to plan because you will not know that in a few years from now, you will need X number of classrooms because in this part of the country or in this part of the continent, this was the number of people that were born. And that's what civil registration and vital statistics gives us. This is still not done across the continent on a regular basis. So it means that we, in terms of planning purposes, it's a challenge. So that's one area which I think, if it's fixed, it will force the kind of structures that are required to collect more data on what we do. Um, if you then think about uh, your element around, uh, again, young people, we know based on the projections that this is where we're going to go. But the question always remains, how do we anticipate the needs of these young people if we are lacking the data? At the same time, you have companies that are able to sell a lot of products to young people. So somehow they find a way to do it with data that they they have collected or very good statistician that help them to run models to be able to define where these young people are. But on the issue of young people, what, what I think one, what one finds interesting to do on the continent is that you cannot have a youth strategy because even in that segment of young people, you have some that are on the continent earning working for companies that are not on the continent and making the income in dollars. They have a different, different aspirations to the person who's making the money in local currency. So you even find that even in that segment that you call young people and moving with the projections, the nature of work today makes it almost impossible to say that I'm going to have a youth strategy. Because uh, the band, the, the disparity in that band is so huge. It goes from the young person who's earning by being an influencer or any of these um, different jobs that people have created compared to the one who's sitting in a rural area and helping his parents on the farm. 
So there are differences in needs for this group of people. So the data that we talk about cannot be sourced using traditional uh, methodology. Partnership between uh, government and uh, GAFAs, I mean, the large, the Google, uh, Apple, Facebook, um, and Amazon, Microsoft, uh, is extremely important because of the fact that a lot of young people use these tools. And these tools collect data. Financial institutions also have data. When you open a bank account, there is some basic data that you provide. So when we speak about data, we also need to speak about the rules and regulation that govern the use of data. So it's one thing to have the data, but how is it being used? Who has access to it? Who owns the data? Those are important elements in terms that we also need to think about uh, to really uh, appreciate how we resolve the issues that we have with better data. Yeah, so thinking about that, there's actually a company that I'm aware of called Veamo, and what they do is that they try and decentralize access to data, collection and access to data through digital technology. So we are talking about um, using mobile phones to collect health data around HIV and all of that, going to the last mile, using these um, voice note kind of technology to be able to collect some of these data. So I think that's very key in the evolution of how research is going to be done on the continent by trying to digitize um, 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 the approach to it. So now let me let yeah. me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. What, why did you use the term last mile? <laughs> I guess it has become a popular parlance for how we... Um, Think about people who do not have access to basic, the basic foundations of the digital economy. Because I think when you talk about last mile, we are talking about people who may not have access to one of the very critical things of the digital economy, which is internet. Because I think that's where the separation comes from. Because the internet creates a platform where information is gained at all levels. But then the last mile, for the most part, are not able to have access to that. That's my thinking around it. So, if then we've been talking about the African continent, so the majority of us would have left um, a rural town and moved to the city. Which is still happening, by the way. So, where's the last mile then? Is the last mile the city or the village? I think that's an interesting point, but I would think that it's, it's the village, right? But I understand what you're trying to say, that with the increase in rural urban migration, there is a diminishing last line, because the last line eventually is the people that are coming to these urban spaces and are actually not getting resources. So I think that's very interesting, because even in the urban cities, we tend to think about urban cities as the next level of development. But we know that African urban cities have parts that are actually in greater degradation than what we see in the in the villages because now we see an overpopulation and then pressure on amenities pressure on access to basic infrastructure that makes it even worse for people in the urban communities than if they actually remained in the village or i guess the last mile so this is a piece of homework for you you need to really think <laughs> about uh, 
the issue around the last mile and the first mile. Yeah. Because the way you define something will reflect how you allocate resources to it. When we talk about people that are hard to reach, do we even ask ourselves a question whether or not they want to be reached? The most important thing that they need to have is access to better health. And once this is done, access to better education. And then the other elements around the work that they do, which is in many cases around farming, how do we ensure that if they do, if they have a, a farm, if they are growing, I don't know, sweet potatoes or yam, they have access to quality uh, uh, equipment for the soil, fertilizers, and anything that will help them improve the condition. Because it's also a paradigm to assume that we all want the same thing. It's not true. I don't think we all want the same thing. But what we aspire to is ensuring that our health is adequately taken care of. We have to ensure that our um, our work is valued. And if I'm a farmer, the most important thing for me would be that I have quality um, uh, quality soil, quality seeds, access to water for not my farm, but also for my family. So we have to think about what we define and how we define things and the implication of that definition. Because the assumption of the last mile is that it is hard to reach. And I don't think it's always true. Anyway, uh, you are the one who's supposed to be asking questions. <laughs> no, this, this podcast is supposed to be a conversation, right? So I actually like that you're asking <laughs> questions. It is not supposed to be me just asking the questions. It's supposed to be a very friendly style conversation. But obviously about very important things that are important to us. Um, I wanted to talk about the African continental free trade area. In the first place, paying homage to what definition is. I want you to define that for young people who are listening to the podcast. What is the African continental free trade area? It's been in the West for a very long time. So if you can give it maybe a bit of a background to it and what it means for young people and the continent at large. So if you are a young entrepreneur in um, Sao Tome, which has 300,000 people, suddenly you can think about accessing a market of 1.3 billion people with the tariffs which are uh, basically limitations to enter a market or like the the best example would be a visa you need a visa to be able to sell your goods in in uh, in the other country that harmonization that we spoke about earlier means that you can, as an entrepreneur, not only think about your market of 300,000 people if you're in Sao Tome, or let's say 8 million people if you're in Togo, but you can actually think about a larger market. Let's assume that you, know, you think about um, the ECOWAS region, the Economic Committee for West African States, who has already, in a way, uh, a custom union, which means that you can move your goods and people in that region of 400, 400 million people when you food in Nigeria. So eventually, your idea can be 
as large as a continent because it is one platform. Another example that you can think of is, um, let's say, when Jumia becomes what it tends to be, um, you can then just enter that platform and let's say I'm in the Sutu and I see your product that is being made in Sao Tome or in uh, Cape Verde, I can actually buy this product. And because we would have trained more people in logistics, we would have built more infrastructure to transport goods and services and individuals, I can get it from Cape Verde or Sao Tome in Lesotho. So the African continental free trade area is a platform that will allow individual goods and services to be able to move within Africa so that there is no longer only Africans thinking about selling their wares outside of the continent because the markets will be large enough. But for that to happen, you need individuals that can actually buy these products. That's, that's a key part. And for individuals to be able to buy this product, one of the models that we know now is to increase the quality of work that people do. So entrepreneurship, of course, is one of the key elements. And I, I know that you are very passionate about it. The entrepreneurs, that, the entrepreneurs that we have on the continent can think big, can think opportunities beyond the borders of their countries. They can think about opportunities that even if my passports may not allow me to go to that country, my goods can go. Eventually, we'll get to a place where any African can move freely across the continent. So... Some of these things are big terms. They're not easy because you need to negotiate between countries. You need to change some of the rules that govern current trade within the continent. But it is an aspiration that a few years from now, any African entrepreneur will see that they have a market of 1.3 billion people to be able to serve. I think that's a great aspiration in the right direction. The alternate scenario is that currently the majority of what we have in African produce, especially for food produce, are things that do not, well, we do not have the capacity to, um, what do you call it, send them into finished goods, right? We make them into finished goods. And that will mean that that still gap between raw and finished good, good would exist even with the opportunity that is even greater now. So would that not mean that we still are in that place where we are not able to take full advantage of the opportunity that exists with the, 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 the trade area because even though it's an open platform now, we still do not have either the infrastructure all the mechanism structures to be able to move products into finished goods because at large that's what we are going to use eventually i think there is there's progress which is being made um let's think about for example the informal uh, carpenters now in the streets of uh, accra in each city you find carpenters that can actually make um furniture 
that a lot of people go and buy. Can this carpenter think about being able to sell his work across the continent? Potentially, yes. But if you have uh, certain barriers, that individual may not think about selling his way outside of the city in which he is or maybe the, the place around. So, um, in, in, in a nutshell, the question around transformation or structural transformation is very much linked to the issue around the African continental free trade area. There is progress in the sense that, for example, uh, Cote d'Ivoire intends to transform 100% of the cashew nuts that they produce. Instead of selling them uh, to other countries raw and then resold here or, or somewhere else. There has been progress in the policy harmonization around industrialization that on the continent. And if you read a lot of what is being uh, pushed by leading institutions on the continent, Economic Commission for Africa, African Development Bank, the African Union, there's, and even the African Union Development Agency, there is a clear understanding of what is required to make this work for the majority of Africans. Manufacturing, industrialization, improve agriculture. You may have seen that there is a lot of work that is being done to improve African agriculture because most countries that have moved into manufacturing and industrialization affects the agriculture element. I remember reading about when education became free in the United States of America. It is when the country moved from agriculture to manufacturing and the kind of skills that were required required uh, more education and the cost of that education increased. Therefore, the government implemented a policy to ensure that more people could go to school. So we shouldn't look at things as separate items. If you want to have improved manufacturing, improved industrialization, the question around education, which I was saying education is for the purpose, then you ensure that you start to train the people for the direction in which you are taking the country or the continent. We know that the direction is the FCTA. And that direction implies manufacturing or agriculture, manufacturing, industrialization, renewable energies to be able to, to do this because we can't uh, assume that we will do industrialization with heavy pollution. It will cost more money, but it doesn't make sense to try to accelerate your industrialization and deplete your oceans, deplete uh, the, the climate and you end up in a situation where you've done all this work and you don't have people left to actually enjoy it. So the question of how, how we're going to do the industrialization is extreme, is as important as how do we ensure that we, we remain re relevant in the African context, but also on the global stage. As you rightly mentioned, majority of workers in the world would be from Africa because of the reservoir young people that we have. So AFCT gives a direction and that direction implies that there are some changes that need to be made to the educational system so that the skills that are required become available. So uh, the, the key part is that all this is connected. 
they are not separate pieces of uh, they're all the same pieces of the same puzzle yeah i think that <laughs> it's going to be very interesting seeing how we're able to combine a growing industrializing africa and the goals of sustainability in the world coming up and um, that would be very interesting to watch because the trend has always been that as industrialization manufacturing goes up so goes a drain of sustainability goals because of how much fossil fuel and you know economic activity actually impacts sustainability in the downward direction but let's see how that turns out um i want us to do more personal conversations now like a question that just came to my mind is what's something about yourself that you didn't know while growing up as a child as a young man that now you have found maybe retrospectively or through experiences that is supposed that is true about you it's a i it's it's a difficult question uh, <laughs> because i i try as much as possible to continue to be a learner um and i think one of the most uh important change in my life is when i became a father uh because suddenly i have a responsibility not only to myself uh and to my family that was expanded but to the rest of the community at large because the kind of education that i give to my children will either make them or help them remain good african citizens or they will become a nuisance to the rest of the, of the continent so it is a it's a heavy responsibility and becoming one is probably the best lesson in leadership and i um i don't think i was necessarily prepared for it uh it was a difficult moment because at the same time i had wished that you know my father was still around for me to kind of ask this kind of questions of you know, what it is to be a father but i think he had given me enough tools for me to be able to continue to learn and it's an it's it's an ongoing journey um so what i what i wish i knew then is probably not relevant because eventually you find out and you only find out if you are open to learn if you are open to take risk um and children are very good at allowing you to learn in different ways because they have their own pace and you have to adapt for a very long well, for a good period of time they don't speak but you have to find a way to understand what's wrong with them and you can't do this by by talking you have to observe and as i was telling you that's probably one of the lessons as well for me is the observing and absorbing which I think it's something that I didn't necessarily know then that I know now and that came to me probably became clearer when I had my um, when we had our first child because for a long time you just observe and absorb uh what makes her uh, happy what makes her annoyed what makes her cry and this is how you guide yourself so um it's a continuous journey and i i i try as best as possible to continue to learn uh to continue to look at life with that sense of optimism because i want to make sure that my children live in a better continent in a better world and i can only do this if i continue to learn so 
I don't. That's probably one thing. I don't think I, if you know, if you had uh, met me when I was much younger, I really didn't like reading, for example. You know, that's really something that I just didn't like. Um, so I would rather I would read a, a dictionary because my parents wanted me to read, but I didn't want to, and I told them, okay, it's fine. I'll read the dictionary. You know, I'll learn words, but I don't want to read books. So that was a compromise. But today. I would, I would certainly read different books on different topics. Um, so yeah, so we change as individuals. You know, nothing is static. And I, uh, I think, you know, if there's one thing which has been constant is that ability to learn that I learned from my parents. Um, and I'm trying also now to pass on to my children. Yeah, that's very profound. Um, you talk a lot about your father. Um, can you tell us a little about your father and the bond between both of you and how he impacted you in your younger and even older years? He was a medical doctor um, and a lot of his life has been about uh, saving lives, helping others, um, telling us about the value of life, uh, a life well lived but also a life lost. Um, some of the conversation at home when, for example, the, the HIV epidemic started to hit the continent were very much about lives that were lost and what we had to do to ensure that we preserve our own life. And that has definitely marked me. You know, and you know, both my parents, my mother was a nurse, my father was a doctor. So this element around caring for the other person has been a constant feature of, my, of me growing up, basically. And I think that has never left me. One thing which is, which also has never left me is the fact that my father always reminded me that my inheritance was my education. And when you are, this is repeated to you almost every single day, you start to value his own life, but also what he's trying to, to leave you with. Which is something that, you know, as I think back, um, they were both very great teachers in making us understand that everything in life needs to be earned, that there is a, there is a price for taking shortcuts, there's a price for patience, and we just have to value which price we are willing to pay. And as best as possible, they did all they could to make us avoid the shortcuts. And I remember when I started university in South Africa, it was three years after I finished high school. So you can imagine that at that time, I think to myself, okay, Jesus, all my years, i earning the bachelor this year. I'm in first year. But he allowed me to understand that the three years in between were not lost because I was learning something else. And that was also a lesson in patience. So I'm still learning from, from what he taught me and then from what my mother also taught me because it was a, a joint effort to help me navigate this world. And yeah, 
I uh, I hope that I can be as good as he was to me as uh, to my children. Um, I think that I can relate to that. You know, I actually also stayed home for two years after completing high school, and as I guess young ambitious people, one of the things that can happen to you and that you appreciate retrospectively is that sometimes, no matter how far you want to go, that moment of pausing is one of the best things that you can that can happen to you because it gives you a time to reflect on the next part of your journey. Because I think in my experience, what we seem to do as people who are very ambitious, young, just wanting to climb a lot of hills, achieve a lot of things and jumping from one state to the other we don't stop and actually breathe and ask ourselves that what is the essence of all these things that we want to achieve and how does it impact our lives and the world and i think that more often than not those moments of pauses i guess they are like sighs when you're having conversations it gives you time to think and and i think it's very crucial absolutely, absolutely. yeah um so I, what I wanted to ask you, because I was very curious, is that looking at how you, your educational path and all of that, I think that perhaps the influence of your father and mother is what led you to eventually to this part of non-profit because your skill set could actually have landed you in a different frame of work where you would probably be working for profit organizations. And I'm just asking that why did you choose this part and is it because of the influence of your parents who are basically health and social workers? Well, it is very much linked. Um, but the, the funny thing is that my, my mother always wanted me to be a banker. Now, that was <laughs> her dream. She wanted me to be a banker because I have two, ankle, two uncles that um, became bankers. And you know, they branched out after, but they were bankers. So that was for her the definition of success. <laughs> um, she didn't think went, she was successful as a nice well you know the, it's, it's all relative you always want to get something which is better for your children and remember you want a profession where you think that your children will have all that they need you know including financial resources yeah so um, the choice not to work in a bank sort of came around 2001, you know, where really I was at university doing these finance courses and I failed finance one once, I failed finance one twice, and I think my mother understood that, okay, this guy, is my dream of him becoming a banker are probably starting to be further and further away. But actually, besides that, I, what they did to me never left me. Now, this idea of being of service to people. And at the time, I didn't think that that was a service to people. But my thinking has changed. And the medical doctor, the, the, the life was about serving other people and saving their lives. So you can't take that away from me. If you know, for uh, a good part of my life, that's what I see every single day. That's what I could experience when I would go to the hospital, when, um, when they, I could go and see what they were, they were doing. You can't take that away from me. So even here today, after four and a half years in financial institution, I understand banking a little bit better. Of course, I mean, my parents are no longer, so she can't see what uh, that dream of me becoming a banker. Um, she died a few months before I started uh, where I am today. But 
I found a way to combine the two, to learn about banking, understand banking better, after spending all this time with, uh, with, uh, with bankers, what they do, how they do it, and use that new knowledge to think about social impact differently. When you have a financial institution, for example, who's focusing on non-communicable disease, where you have a group CEO who's speaking about diabetes or the managing director speaking about malaria, these are important elements that because of the different parts that I've, uh, I have brought, it's, a, it's an additional piece to that puzzle, which will never be complete. But I'm adding one element based on what others have built on. So I don't know what next, what the, the future lies ahead, but ultimately, I think you need um, you need people that can can bring different pieces for for the puzzle that we are all trying to build. And I'm just bringing some of these pieces in a financial institution that is that is willing to have some of these ideas that I have to be tested and to try and advance the common goal of improving the continent. I think that your mom was very proud of you. <laughs> um, you. By the way, his, <laughs> um, sorry, her, um, her goal of you becoming a banker actually came to pass, just in a different direction. So it's a yeah. good thing altogether. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I think I want to talk about is around public health. Just because your mom, your father were in the sector and you have also actually worked in fighting against non-communicable diseases, malaria, HIV, and all of that. What do you think that we should do to improve the sector as it is now? Because I, I personally think that one of the things, you know, I was having a conversation with Charles Moyala, and we talked finally uh, about how um, teachers being one of the most crucial people of our educational institution are the least paid and we expect them to go to heaven and to take their <laughs> their reward in our local parlance. I think that there's a certain kind of similar framework around health workers too that, well, they are supposed to be nice and all of that and they are not supposed to think about how much they they get because they are saving lives and there's nothing like that. So I just want to hear your final thoughts around the intercession of the future of the of the sector how it should be improved and especially how we can improve the lives of health um, personnel because i think you said in the beginning of this podcast that one of the things that you had realized in fighting uh, ebola helping fight ebola was that health workers are very much disincentivized um to to do their work on a very high level so the first thing that we need to take out of a conversation when we speak about health or education is a free part. There is no <laughs> such thing as free healthcare or free education. It is tax paid. Somebody is paying for it. You as a user might get it for free, but somebody is paying for it. So we, as individuals on this continent, we need to understand that it is not for free. It is subsidized by taxpayers' money that are donating <clears throat> resources to, to the continent. And if we accept that first element, that it is not free, 
we then ask ourselves an important question. What is the cost of ensuring that a health worker is available to citizens in a reasonable ratio? And they, the World Health Organization can, can sort of do this calculation to say this is a number that we need to have per, um, per population. So that's one. The second one, when we have been in the habit of receiving external funding for our healthcare system, it puts the Ministry of Health in a very difficult position because of all the priorities that the Minister of Finance or Planning will have. How much can he or she allocate to health when they need to fix the roads, they need to build infrastructure, they need to take off so many other different elements. And if there's been the habit of receiving resources from outside, in terms of prioritization, you may end up with prioritization that is done for the other sectors that don't necessarily receive that attention. The third element is around prevention. What do we do to avoid falling chronically ill? That to cost more money. Can we ensure, for example, that we look at our diet? You know, today's World Diabetes Day, um, and a lot of people on the continent are now becoming, um, are now contracting the disease. A lot of it has to do with uh, lifestyle, what we eat, how we eat, what we consume lack of physical activity, and so on and so forth. So if we focus then on prevention, the same way as there's been a lot of work for my generation to be so scared of HIV AIDS, even though some of us have died of AIDS, nobody now sees the picture of what AIDS did at the beginning of the epidemic. I remember those pictures vividly and I understood that I had to protect myself. There's one group of diseases which is very close to my heart, not because I'm suffering this from it, but I think if we fix them, it will change the life of many of our brothers and sisters in rural areas, which by the way, I call this the first mile, which are neglected tropical diseases. So neglected tropical disease, a group of diseases like elephantiasis, uh, worms that children have and they can't go to school. If we eradicate most of them, and interesting enough, Togo has eradicated two. I just saw that Malawi also just eradicated um, elephantiasis. Uh, I need to double check that, but they just I just saw the news around uh, Malawi eliminated one of uh, uh, NTDs. If we get this right, it means that we would have resolved one of the key issues that are, is affecting public health in our rural communities. Today, it costs about 50 cents per person per year to get the treatment, or sometimes less in certain countries. But even at that cost of 50 cents per person per year, we're struggling to get rid of most of these diseases. And science has already taken care of it, but we're still struggling to do that. So... Um Thank you very much. I think I've taken a lot of your time. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, um, I appreciate I appreciate the other.